Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. In 2016, President Barack Obama hosted a meeting at the White House. Not an intelligence briefing, not a diplomatic mission, but a dance party. <laughs> she dancing? Come on. So what's, what's the secret to, 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 to still dancing at 106? What's the secret to still dancing at 106, Obama asked. And he asked it of his dance partner, Virginia McLaurin, aged 106, and roughly half as tall as either of the Obamas. You want to say hi, Michelle? Yes! <laughs> McLaurin was born in the Jim Crow South in 1909. She told Obama that meeting the president and first lady was a dream come true, and she was even more thrilled that her visit had coincided with Black History Month. I would never live to get in the white. Well, you, you are, are right here. here. And I you well, are here. I am so happy. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Virginia McLaurin lived for another seven years. She died just last year at the age of 113. Imagine all that she lived through and witnessed, the change she saw. McLaurin was born before talking movies. She lived 113 years and died in a world utterly unrecognizable from the one into which she was born. What an exceptional life. But maybe not so exceptional for much longer. That's because the United Nations estimates that today, there are just about 600,000 people alive who are more than 100 years old around the world. But by 2050, the UN projects that that number will rise fivefold, which means that vastly more people will live to be over 90 years old and even get to 100. So what happens when millions of people hit the century mark? Well, that is the subject of our guest today. He's William J. Cole, and he's out with a new book. It's titled The Big 100, The New World of Super Aging. William Cole, welcome to On Point. Great to be with you, Magna. Okay, so you are not 100 years old. Not yet. <laughs> I'm working on it. But I understand it was a sort of a, there was a, a moment in your life where you crossed into a somewhat new world that inspired you to write this book, and that was the arrival of an AARP card? <laughs> That's right. It came a couple of years ago and shocked me. It was somewhat depressing. You're never quite ready for that thing to come in the mail. Come on, the senior discounts are amazing. Uh, evidently, I haven't really taken advantage of them yet, you know, <laughs> but uh, it's a startling reminder for me that I'm growing older and, uh, in a broader sense, realizing we're all aging. Uh, as an American society, uh, by practically every metric. Yeah. And in fact, um, I remember in my family, too, when my parents received their AARP card, they were like, <laughs> what? Uh, but the fact is, is that um, what we consider to be senior elder now is quite, quite different than it was before. And, and, you, and you write, you, you tell that story throughout the book here. But you also have a, a family member who lived to be quite, what, 100 and something? Almost 104. Oh, my gosh. This is your grandmother. Yes. Tell, tell us about her. So Conchetta Marie Mercurio Sansone was born to Sicilian immigrants in Brooklyn, New York in 1899, my mother's mother. And she was with us until 2003. 
So her life touched parts of three centuries, which is kind of a mind-blowing thing to think about. Uh, and she was a remarkable person even beyond her age, her longevity. She played uh, piano for the silent movies, which is something that always makes my knees go a little weak when I think about it. <laughs> Uh, a remarkable person. And when you have somebody like that in your family, it just kind of kindles a fascination for these very old human beings. Yeah. What was she like? Um, you know, especially, say, in the, wow, two, 23 years after she she was 80. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of time there. There's still a fifth of her life was ahead of her. She was widowed, you know, early in her marriage and had to, you know, uh, soldier on. Uh, you know, early in her life, of course, she uh, it wasn't easy to be a young woman in the 1920s. And, and she had goals and dreams and, uh, you know, to entertain. She was a toe dancer uh, in New York for a time. Later in life, uh, she suffered crippling arthritis uh -huh. that kept her from playing the piano. And she was able to heal herself of that by putting herself on a very strict diet, no artificial flavors, preservatives, no artificial colors. And this was really decades before we kind of caught on that that might be a good strategy. Her, so she she uh, abated her arthritis that way? Not only did she abate her arthritis, Megna, but at a family wedding when she was in her early 90s, she kicked her legs up into the air on the dance floor to my shoulder level. No yes. way. Yes. Oh, God. So amazing individual. Okay, so... Uh, she sounds like a completely remarkable woman, but I do have to ask, were there other people in her family who also made it to centenarian status? No, uh, okay. she was the first. Uh, but, you know, my mother uh, is 92 and still living independently in the house I grew up in. Uh, very, very vigorous. <laughs> we, we put up a video of her um, marching through the grocery store. It got almost 100,000 views on TikTok. <laughs> Uh, my mom, the TikTok star. <laughs> but, you know, hashtag life goals. Yeah. Well, so it seems like you have very good genes then, right? Because isn't the popular understanding that, you know, once you cross uh, like uh, the late 80s or your early 90s, what we're really talking about is a genetic predisposition for longevity. Yes. So the way this works, um, and it's been kind of uh, established pretty well by uh, longevity experts, is that uh, actually our behaviors our diet, our exercise, uh, the amount of sun exposure we, we uh, give ourselves, uh, those are things that actually play about a 75% role in getting us to 90 if we're fortunate enough to live that long. And then the script kind of flips. And uh, from 90 to 100, the genetics piece plays an increasingly uh, dominant role. By the time you get to the uh, place where uh, Ms. McLaren uh, got, mm -hmm. uh, it's in, in almost entirely genetic. She won the genetic lottery, you know, all five numbers and the Powerball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so let's go back in time a little bit because it, there's no doubt that overall in the United States um, – uh, life expectancy has changed dramatically in, in the past century. It's taken a little bit of a dip in the in recent years, and we'll come back and talk about that in a, l a little bit later. But, like, say you were born um, at the time that your grandmother was or that Miss McLaurin was, which was, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, what would your life expectancy have been? Six, 60, 70? Maybe? Uh, it, you know, honestly, yes, around that, but um, even less, you even know, less. At, at some okay. points. For example, 
uh, in uh, about a century ago, uh, in 1920, uh, our life expectancy was half of what uh, what it is now. You know, uh, World War II you know, played right. a huge role in our mortality. And there was, you know, that big influenza epidemic, pandemic uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, mm-hmm. 1918 around there. Uh, that killed, you know, indiscriminately by the billions, you know, and that lowered us right. sub- substantially. We climbed and clawed our way back. Yeah. Okay. So, you're, but you're saying roughly it was half as much. Roughly it, half. It, that's so. That's amazing. And but the looking forward into the future, there's a a fact that you present, or or a let's say a prediction that you present in the book that I haven't been able to stop thinking about, uh, and I need you to explain to me how this prediction was was made. And that is the possibility that uh, if you're five years old today, you have a ver- you have what like half of five year olds today could expect to live to be what near one hundred to be one hundred to be one hundred. Yes. Uh, this comes from Stanford's Center on Longevity, and they took a deep dive into uh, a, a lot of things to come up with this projection, uh, primarily because of incredible and continuing breakthroughs in the way we treat the things that kill us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, c- cancer, uh, for example, uh, earlier in my own lifetime, that was a very grim diagnosis and, and sometimes a, a death sentence. But people are surviving cancer. We have new treatments, immunotherapy to activate the T cells that will fight the cancer in our body uh, rather than, you know, radiation and chemo. Mm, okay. So it's really a medical revolution then if, that extends life versus some kind of uh, major genetic change, right? Because we were talking about the genetic link earlier. I was just thinking, well, this rapid expansion of life expectancy is happening too quickly for genes to have changed dramatically, right? Right. That's true. Uh, you know, mostly it's just uh, medical and technological breakthroughs that are advancing our ages. And, uh you know, the young five-year-olds today can expect to see more of that through the course of their lives. There are also even uh, people on the fringes of, of this thought who are thinking that uh, we may be able to live 150 years or longer because we will rapidly get to the point where we can, you know, print a new pancreas with a 3D printer or, you know, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that's a little... <laughs> Far out, but uh, not out of the realm of possibility for some in the scientific community. Mm. So um, as we go through the the conversation, I want to hear uh, from you some different stories of people that you uh, profile in the book as we also talk about sort of the the science and bust some myths, too. But we've got a minute before our first break. Can you give us the introduction to someone you write about early in the book? And that's uh, uh, Jean Calment. Jean Calment. Jean Calment. Right. Sorry. It's, a, ha, ha, ha. it's okay. <laughs> Je vous désolé. <laughs> C'est pas grave. Uh, Jean Calment uh, still is the oldest person who ever lived whose age could be authenticated by records. Uh, she lived to 122 years and 164 days. A remarkable individual. Uh, my favorite quote from her is, I only have one wrinkle and I'm sitting on it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, but tell me, tell me a little bit more. I mean, um, uh, this idea of the the spirit of a person who's lived to be a hundred or more—that uh, like, are they always universally sort of upbeat? Yes, that that characterized okay. Jeanne Calment very much. You know, she was um, she she took fencing lessons when she was eighty-five. She didn't stop 
riding her bicycle till she was 100. Wow. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit more about her and what her life tells us. Uh, our guest today is William Cole. He's author of The Big 100, The New World of Super Aging. And we have an excerpt of it at our website, onpointradio.org. So we'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and William Cole is our guest today. He's author of The Big 100, The New World of Super Aging. Um, so, Bill, I want to talk a little bit more about Jean Calme, if I could, and maybe some of the things about how she lived her life that are common to um, to other people who are currently in that that uh, superannuated group of, of human beings. Um because this is often something that, that people ask when we do shows about, um, you know, demographic shifts. Like, what is everybody doing who's living that long? So um, I, as I recall from your book, just to put some, uh, like, a, a mental image out there, uh, Jean Calme was, uh, was born in 1875. Right. Just a couple of years after what Lincoln was assassinated. That's right, yes. Uh, and then she died 122 years later. Right. Okay. So if there were things about her and how she lived her life that you would point to as um, perhaps beyond genetics having contributed to her, her long life, what would they be? Certainly positivity. Uh, and, you know, there have been studies that show that uh, having a positive attitude about life in general, but specifically about our aging, our own personal journey, and, you know, as we age, um, adds years to our lives. And uh, it's very interesting. You know, we, we, we tend to think of our bodies as being completely separate from our minds, and uh, yet they are knitted together, and uh, the interplay is astonishing. In Jeanne Calmont's um, case, she was very positive, very uh, amusing. She liked to joke. Uh, she, she said late in her life, that she stopped wearing mascara because she was laughing so much that she would cry it off and make a mess of her face. So. Okay. So positivity, that would be one important thing. Or mindset, I think, maybe even more broadly. What else? Uh, resilience, being able to uh, you know, rally and overcome setbacks. Uh, she was able to do that. I, I, the other side of that coin would be handling stress well. Uh, she did not necessarily have an easy life, although she was uh, a woman of privilege, you could yeah. say. Uh, but uh, she lost her husband tragically. Uh, he 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 died by eating spoiled cherries on a picnic, <laughs> you know. And so she had to you know live without him. She lost uh, 
she outlived her, her children. She lost a grandson in a car crash. Somehow she had to rally and overcome these these tragedies in her mm. life. Mm. Okay, so resilience, positive mindset, um, genetics, as we, we talked about. People always want to know about diet. You know, her diet is a little bit of an enigma. I would not follow uh, Jean Calmont's <laughs> diet necessarily. <laughs> I, I mentioned in the book about, you know, at her 120th birthday party, uh, there was a huge spread, and she they served her uh, duck and and all kinds of pastry and uh, chocolate cake and heavy, heavy food that, you know, would do in most mere mortals. Sounds like a beautiful French meal. <laughs> I think it's glorious, but I don't know if that's a recipe for 100 and anything. Okay. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of uh, journalism recently uh, around what diet can do, right? And and uh, because there's lots of focus on the Mediterranean diet or how, let's say, um, Japanese elders in Okinawa eat. Um, we'll talk about what's been labeled the blue zones in, in a little bit. But there there must be something to that, right? Or or if, if it's not that the diet is helping people live longer, maybe it's the flip side. Is what we're eating now, is, is it potentially um, curtailing what our possible lifespans could be? Yes. You know, I mean, we've, we, we have a lot of obesity in the United States. And as a consequence of that, uh, uh, diabetes, heart disease, and these are all things that are, you know, cutting our lives short. So certainly we can optimize our chances of living not just a long life, but a healthy life. We talk a lot about the lifespan, but the conversation is incomplete without a discussion of health span. Uh -huh. And that is, of course, you know, how many years we have that where we can enjoy ourselves and, and not be uh, beset by chronic illness or, God forbid, cognitive decline. Okay. I do want to come back to that because that's so, so, so important because it's not just are we prepared as individuals um, regarding our health span if we're going to live longer to actually have those be enjoyable years. But then there's also the broader societal implications, right, of having um, so many more people living much, much longer. So I'm, we're going to spend quite a bit of time um, discussing that. But I did want to just uh, briefly ask you, Bill, about the idea uh, that uh, – are we ready? Are we ready as a society overall? Because this Stanford prediction that you gave, it's what? Uh, we're in 2023 now. It's 27 years away. Right. Are yeah. we ready for that? That are, seems like a massive, massive change. We are not ready. We are certainly not ready. And here's why. You know, uh, there, there's another thing, too, besides the, the five-year-olds projected to live into their hundreds because of uh, medical advances. There's a demographic piece that's driving a huge increase in the numbers of people right. living to a triple-digit age, and that is the uh, aging of the baby boom generation. Uh -huh. so the oldest boomers are 77 right now. So in the next 25 years, the fittest of them will age into their 100s. And because there are so many, uh, and because centenarians tend to occur uh, in about one in 5,000, uh, you know, we're just going to see a huge increase just demographically. So that that's a, a thing that's happening on top of, you know, medical uh, breakthroughs advancing our, our life expectancy down the road. So, you know, we're not ready. We are absolutely not ready. I mean, we, first of all, uh, a terrifying prospect is outliving your money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could, if we don't sort of 
get behind this and, and prepare. We could see elder poverty on a scale we've never seen before. Right. In fact, we've got a comment here from uh, a listener, Michael Richards, who says, start those Roth IRAs early, <laughs> as young as possible. Clearly, it's necessary to raise the Social Security retirement age. When Social Security began, there was there were, according to Michael, there were 16 working people for every retiree. Now it's less than three to one. Um, and then Michael goes on and says, I don't think millennials and Zoomers should be required to pay a higher burden into Social Security, especially when compound. OK, well, this, Michael knows a lot about retirement financing, but especially when compound interest in investing in a Roth at an early age can make Social Security obsolete for most people. Wow, we're getting into some interesting territory there, Michael. But he's pointing out that perhaps um, if this change is going to happen so quickly, our current means of financially assisting elders is inadequate. I mean, what do you think about that? Absolutely. You know, uh, Social Security, uh, the, the, the financial reserves that underpin it are going to run out of money in 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing happening 10 years from now, coincidentally, perhaps, is that for the first time in U.S. history, people 65 and older will outnumber uh, the population 17 and younger. So that will be a huge demographic shift uh, for the United States, uh, a move towards an older population. And a lot of those people will rely on a social security system that is r running out of money. You know, uh, that's one problem. The other is that uh, people just don't save, you know, for retirement or they start way late in life. Michael's right about that. Um, the average or median amount of money that is uh, saved for retirement in the U.S. is $30,000. Uh -huh. That is woefully, uh, yeah. you know, insufficient. So we're going to come back to this in just a second because I have a lot of questions about what you think about how this will change the nature of work or um, what people do with their time if, if they have a choice and how that sort of will have a follow-on impact, a domino effect on the rest of uh, the country and the economy. But I want to just go back to one more thing. We were doing a little survey of the things that uh, that may contribute to super longevity. You talked about mindset, uh, resilience, um, diet. That's an important one. But the, I should have just pointed out earlier, the examples that we've said so far were women. There's always been a tendency, uh, a tendency for women to have longer lifespans That's right. than men. It seems like that that truth is going to continue, and we're going to see a lot more centenarian yes. or plus women than men. Yes. Okay. Yes. So there's no sign of, of that abating at all. Okay. Okay. And then the other thing I was curious about is class, because when we're talking about um, you know jobs that don't damage your body. Right. Or the ability to kind of buy the food that would help you live longer, uh, access to the medical care that you were talking about um, that would you know, stave off things like like cancer, heart disease or provide you those tailored cures for those things. They all are reliant on means. Let's put it that way. So when you look at who the centenarians are today, is there a class effect there that will also continue on or no? Yes, there's enormous inequity in who gets to live to 100. Uh, first of all, there's a racial and ethnic gap that is really troubling. You know, white Americans live about six years longer than black Americans. That's a lot of time. And life is at its essence about time, you know, mm -hmm. time to live and love and, and experience things. Uh, we need to close that gap, uh, you know, urgently. 
And then there's, um, you know, the, the rich get more time. Right. You know, right. Uh, people who have uh, a four-year college degree get more time. Uh, for various reasons, some you just mentioned, you know, they get to work in air-conditioned buildings, not out in the heat, uh, and uh, they are usually uh, able to advocate for themselves at the doctor's office better. Uh, they have better health care in general, and uh, they tend not to smoke. So these are all things that, you know, the in terms of class and income— uh, it's a, you know, there's a gap there. Yeah. And it sounds like that gap will persist if not grow. Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, let's shift for a second to um, talking about how other nations that are sort of ahead on the curve of superannuation are are right now handling it. Because, um, because Bill, I have to say, ah, <laughs> maybe it's just by virtue of me being a cynical Gen Xer. What rushes to mind first with the thought that there, we're going to have, you know, possibly half of today's five-year-olds can expect to live to be 100? I'm just thinking about all the problems that come with that. Mm-hmm. But if we look at places, let's take, you know, someplace like Japan as an example, which is oftentimes pointed to as um, a nation that, that has an aging problem already. I mean, what would you say the impacts are right now as we see them? So Japan, of course, is uh, and and it's the oldest society we have. You know, uh, a third of their people uh, are sixty-five plus, and uh, you know they they do sort of they're more geared to uh, accommodating that demographic. Uh, even just culturally, there, there's a more of a respect uh, for elders, and, and almost you know older people are revered. You know, in, in some senses. Uh, and they are very innovative, you know. So a couple of things that the Japanese are doing is um, trying to combat ageism by uh, having little four-year-olds, uh, they call them baby workers, <laughs> uh, go to uh, nursing homes and assisted living facilities and play and skip and jump and run around in the presence of very old Japanese people. And then the conversations occur and and, and you get this beautiful you know, uh, engagement between the generations. And, uh, and then they're, they're trying different things, uh, you know, with, uh, with health care. And uh, Korea is another example. Mm. Uh, they, you know, they uh, have a wonderful national uh, elder care insurance system that doesn't bankrupt people when they need the care, whether it's home care or eventually uh, something that requires, a, you know, being a in an institution of some kind. Uh, they pay $1,300 a month maximum. And for this, you know, people come to their home, help them with their meds, bathe them, do physical therapy. Uh, that's another uh, challenge we face uh, is loneliness and isolation. Yeah, I was just going to say that because um, already now, the, right, the Surgeon General frequently, uh, talk, Vivek Murthy, talks about the loneliness epidemic, as he calls it, in the United States. And it's particularly acute amongst elders already because um, there's a real lack. When everyone in your cohort starts dying, you start losing your social connections, right? Unless you're living in a community that, that works hard to maintain them, which doesn't, which, have, which doesn't happen in a lot of places in the United States, right, right. Bill? Yeah. So it, it seems to me that the loneliness epidemic could grow as more people live longer? At least in the short or medium term. I, I think, you know, as we age uh, collectively, eventually we may get to a point where our partners, our friends, 
other family members are aging into their hundreds with us. And that's a beautiful thought. Uh, but the first vanguard of people who will really be aging in significant numbers like that will be doing so alone. Uh, and, you know, isolation, you know, the, the Surgeon General declares it a public health crisis. Yeah. Um, the National Institute on Aging says it's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. And it could take up to 15 years off of our lives, which is a massive amount of time. Right, because um, instances of uh, or the rates of depression amongst um, elder, elderly in the United States is, is pretty high. Uh, that's loneliness and social isolation being a major contributing factor. There's, there's something else that I heard in your Japan and uh, and Korea examples, which I think is very different from what we have here in the United States, based on what you said. And that is just the our societal attitudes about the elderly, right? Yeah. Our elders, I'll put it that way. Because if in Korea, they have a system in place to financially support people if they need if they need it for, for elder care, other than Medicaid, right? We don't really have that here. And it doesn't seem to be a, uh, a policy priority, even though the demographic urgency is clearly there. I'm wondering if you think that as more and more people live to be longer and longer, that maybe... Maybe that'll change here because I don't – if it doesn't, then I don't see policy um, uh, policy changes f- coming when they need to in order to support a rapidly aging population. Yeah, it's a concern. It's it's top of mind. Uh, I think that will depend, uh, you know, in large measure on who's in charge. You know, uh, if Republicans maintain control of Congress uh, it, it may be difficult to see any kind of change like that for, you know, people who are – sort of determined to keep government small and spending uh, at a minimum. Uh, they're not imagining these uh, these needs. And, uh, you know, so that's a that, that's a question. OK, a question um, that we but we have potential answers to it looking at other examples like like uh, sorry, Japan and, and Korea, as you just said. Right. And what what else? We've got 45 seconds until our next break here. What else are they doing in um and again, Japan keeps coming to mind because the way economists look at Japan, they see this like giant uh, demographic demographic catastrophe coming because there aren't enough young people to do the jobs uh, anymore in Japan. Do you have that same concern about this the this sort of superannuated bubble that's going to emerge in the United States? I think um, I think we can elaborate on that after the break, but you know. Uh, we shouldn't think of uh, the aging population necessarily as a as a break on our economy, but rather an engine. If we're going to live to 100, we're going to be buying things and, uh, you know, uh, m- more than than before. Buying things. And also, I think it's going to change really fundamental things like how we design cities and work and all that. So yes. we'll discuss that when we come back. William Cole is our guest today. He's author of the new book, The Big 100, The New World of Super Aging. We'll be back in a moment. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast.
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we return to today's conversation, I just want to remind folks that because it's Friday, that means we have an extra special something over in our podcast feed. Yes, it's the jackpot, as we call it. It's our weekly conversation exclusively with On Point News analyst Jack Beatty, who will connect history and literature and politics in a way that really illuminates parts of the world that you have never possibly thought of. And Jack's exploration this week centers around the word pathologize. And in this case, he means the psychiatric name-calling that's had a long history in American politics. So that's in the jackpot this week. Go over to the On Point podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe if you haven't already, and listen to Jack today. Uh, In this conversation, I'm joined by William Cole. He's author of The Big 100, The New World of Super Aging. And we're talking about the fact that many more people in the near future are going to be living a lot longer. Um, The hows and the whys of that and, of course, the implications of having potentially millions more people live to be 100 years old. Now, now, Bill, a few minutes ago, I just kind of quickly brushed over um, what's being popularly called blue zones. And those are parts of the world in which people or let's say the um, the incidence of centenarians are higher than um, in other places in the world. Um, And so those places include, we mentioned Japan, um, in and around the Mediterranean, Sardinia, things like that. And uh, journalist Dan Butner, he's been writing about Blue Zones for quite a while. And we just have this clip of an interview he gave to ABC News. And he talks about the places um, that he studied and what they have in common. Strong community ties, Lots of walking and... Overwhelmingly, they're eating a whole food, plant-based diet. The five foods in every blue zone are whole grains, greens, tubers like sweet potato, nuts, and beans. And if you're eating a cup of beans a day, you're probably not only getting all your protein and most of your fiber, but also it's associated with living an extra four years. So what do you think about the Blue Zones hypothesis? So the Blue Zones are fascinating. Uh, There is a bit of a myth to them, however, uh, that they are, in fact, centenarian factories. Uh, They don't actually, the numbers don't bear out that they produce significantly more people living into their 100s. What they do um, do is, you know, they have larger populations of people living in their, to their, into their 90s and very, very healthy and, uh, you know, they're very vigorous. And we can learn a lot from how they roll through life. Uh, that diet, uh, of course, is, is something that, you know, we can take a cue from. But, you know, everyone was watching that Netflix series recently on, you know, uh, Living to 100 mm-hmm. and the Blue Zones. You would be hard-pressed to hear a mention of genetics in that whole series. So, you know, we cannot – you know, we don't like to think that long life is out of our control and we like to control the things that we can. And that makes sense. But uh, we can't ignore that. The genetics piece is there. Right. I mean the way I look at it – and you can tell me this is hogwash – but the way I look at it is that genes help determine – uh, the range of the maximal number of years you could potentially live. And I don't say, like, the the exact year, but the, the range, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then environment and behavior 
will kind of uh, help influence how far into that range you can actually go. But there is kind of a limit, the genetically imposed limit. Does that is that a kind of is that a accurate way of looking at it? There was a study in, in Italy that found that um, after 105, uh, they 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 sort of uh, felt like the ceiling kind of fell out, and so you know they were reluctant to say that there is a limit. You know, uh, we will see. You know, uh, like, well, but when I mean a limit, like there's I'm thinking of my own family history. I don't think that there's any way I'm going to live to be 100 because there's just you're, – you're being like, huh, oh, maybe not, Magna. <laughs> but no, I'm just being – I'm being honest, right, because we're talking about how genetics is a really um, important factor here. That's not discussed in things like Netflix uh, documentaries. Um, and I, I keep coming back to this because are we leading people astray by talking so much about how lifespan is going to be – um, elongated, not for everyone, but for a lot of folks in the, in the next half century, without talking about, okay, well, will those years be worth living? Yes, right. And that, of course, that's the key question. You know, what will those years look like? Will we be mobile? Will we have, you know, friends and family still with us? Or will we have outlived them, you know? Uh, and, you know, the big, the big question, will we be cognitively, you know, with it? Uh, that's a real fear, but probably the the biggest fear most of us have when we contemplate old age. Well, we're also, I mean, yes, because we're seeing rising rates of uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, yes. all of that. Um, it's interesting that you said a lot of medical uh, research is now focused on things like heart disease and cancer, which are can be considered diseases of old age. Do you think there's enough, <clears throat> excuse me, do you think there's uh, uh, enough focus as well on these the d- diseases of the mind and brain? Well, Alzheimer's is getting a lot of money okay. and attention, you know, and as a consequence of that, uh, you know, big pharma is developing a new class of drugs to slow its effects. We still have no cure, you know. Mm-hmm. One uh, thing that I, I um, talk about in the book is um, that cognitive decline, decline is not inevitable as we age, as a matter of fact, and that there are quite a large number of centenarians who never develop any cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. And there was a fascinating study done two years ago in the Netherlands of uh, 300 centenarians uh, ranging in age from 100 to 108. And uh, as part of the study, they agreed to have their brains examined upon death. And a lot of them had no signs of any kind of, you know, the plaques or tangles that are telltale signs of Alzheimer's disease. And then there was a subset who did have the plaques and tangles, but had never in their, you know, 105-year-old lives or whatever uh, exhibited any decline. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, if we can unlock the secrets to why, you know, they, why they had, you know, the, the, their brains showed signs of Alzheimer's, but they never developed symptoms, and we could develop a pill for that, you know, that would be huge. Yeah. So back to that question of will those extra years or longer years be worth living? Obviously, there's the health question, like you said. Um, or will we just be living an, an additional decade or two in a state of like, you know, constant um, uh, medical distress? Um, there's all uh, the financial question. Will people have enough money to be able to live? But I also want to get to something else because I know you, you talk about it in the book. Um, climate change. And when so many people are living so much longer, how does that relate to 
even current day concerns about climate change? Well, I'll tell you, you know, this is the big question mark hanging over all of this, because if we don't address our climate crisis immediately, uh, we're not going to have any longevity, never mind extreme longevity. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking about those five-year-olds who are projected to, you know, live to 100. What's the world going to look like for them? In fact, what's the world going to look like for the boomers who will become 100 uh, in two and a half decades when we will, by all projections, begin to really uh, feel the full force and fury of climate change? And who wants to live to 100 on a planet ravaged by extreme weather and as a consequence of that, uh, economic insecurity and political instability? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a, 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 an urgent an obviously, uh, you know, transcendent problem we need to address. Mm. Related to that, I know I'm going to get a lot of email from folks who say, well, there are already too many people on the planet anyway. So why would we want to have more people living much longer? Because, you know, the carrying capacity of the earth is already under stress. I mean, what do you think about that? It's a concern. Uh, You know, and as I mentioned in the book, some of us will live to 100 whether we like it or not. (laughs) You know, these things are happening. And uh, unless we uh, do something uh, dramatic to stop our lives, we're going to, you know, potentially live that long. that's a, that's a concern because of resources that people will need and, and uh, younger generations could be disadvantaged in terms of how much money and, and uh, government spending there is for their needs. Yeah. So let me ask you about that because um, we've been focusing on what life will be like for, for people who will be living uh, to 100. Um but what will life also be like for the younger people of the future? Because I'm thinking about, you know, Senator Dianne Feinstein recently passed away uh, in her 90s, working until the end. And um, there's a lot of uh, you know, industries and sectors where people um, either are continuing to work because they have to for the money mm-hmm. or are continuing to work because... You know, I mean, when you're 65 these days or 70, your fitness to work has not actually diminished all that much. Right. And so there's some there's some tensions there in terms of how the the shape of the labor force might also be changed, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, uh, and, you know, in 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 this country, which I kind of describe as the United States of gray America, (laughs) uh, you know, we are a full blown gerontocracy or will be soon, if not already, you know. Uh, We saw that with Mitch McConnell. You know, we have the oldest Congress we've ever had. We have the oldest occupant of the Oval Office we've ever had. And these these are issues that that, uh, you know, concern people. The median age of Americans is uh, just under 40. Only 5 percent of Congress is under 40. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we call ourselves a representative democracy and a lot of our younger citizens don't feel represented. Mm Okay. And then also I briefly mentioned, because uh, this is particularly interesting to me, like our just our physical infrastructure isn't necessarily built for, well, right now it's definitely not bu- built for people who are, A, differently abled or elderly, right? It sounds like, it feels like that will have to change if we're going to have so many more people, forget 100, but even in their, you know, the octogenarians or nonagerians. Absolutely. You know, and that's, that's the thing. You know, uh, we will see uh, an increase in the numbers of people living to 100, but even those who don't make it quite to that milestone will live deeper into their 80s and 90s, and they will need accommodation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have only got a few minutes left, uh, Bill. And I hope you don't mind if I ask you 
a personal question. Sure. Okay. Uh, so first and foremost, I really hope you don't mind if I say this, but you don't look your age at all. <laughs> you look vastly young. You're how old are you? Now? I'll be sixty-three next month. Okay. Well, I want to look like you. Oh. <laughs> when Thank I you, reach sixty-three, it's your good genes shining <laughs> through here. Um, do you want to be like your grandmother and and get even past a hundred? Absolutely. First of all. Since I wrote this book, I kind of have to. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm on the hook <laughs> to live to 100. And out of pure journalistic curiosity, yes, I, I would like to see what that's like. With the same caveats we all have that I, I, you know, can put two sentences together, you know, and move around. You know, I have a friend, a, a fellow journalist, who says that if I don't live to 100, that will be the first line in my obituary. You know. William J. Cole, a veteran journalist and an author who wrote a definitive book about living to 100, only to fall spectacularly short of his own hype, <laughs> died <laughs> Thursday. He was 62. <laughs> well, let us pray that that does not happen. <laughs> yes, um, let us I'm, pray. I'm fairly, fairly confident it will not. But in your, you know, your years of studying um, increases in longevity, have you made changes to your life? Yes. Uh, I took a little bit of an early retirement from AP, where I was running our news ops for New England, uh, because I realized early on that toxic stress is the enemy of longevity. And there is no shortage of toxic stress in the 24-hour news cycle. So I exited that uh, to work in a different rhythm, uh, like I do now with, with book projects. Uh, and I gave up alcohol because uh, I, my younger brother actually died at 59 of mm. alcoholism. And uh, that seemed like a good thing to uh, to steer away from. Oh, I'm sorry about your brother. That's, you know. Yeah. Well, we've got a comment here from Stephen Hames who who takes us back to sort of the spiritual aspect of um, what may connect people who live for a long time. He says, aging well and with purpose. Yes would require a return to social institutions that nurture the soul and cultivate the spirit. So Stephen says, go to church. I'll expand that a little more broadly or you know, be part of organizations that uh, give you a sense of, of meaning and purpose. What do you think about that? It's, he's spot on. You know, uh, research has shown that people who embrace a religious faith live longer than people who don't. Uh, and mostly they think it has to do with attending services, and, and that speaks to the social aspects of belief, not necessarily the, the creeds themselves. But it, it is a, a phenomenon right across the spectrum of faith, from Christianity to Islam to Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. It doesn't matter what you believe, but if you do believe, you tend to live longer. Interesting. I wonder, like you said, attending services of any kind, so perhaps it's being part of a community of mutual support, maybe. Right. Huh. Okay. In the last minute that we have, um, I also just want to do one final reality check. And I just barely mentioned it at the, near the top of the show, and that is in the United States since 2020, right, and possibly even before that, but we've actually seen a decline we in have. life expectancy. Um, and so it just it's a stark reminder that trajectories can be thrown off of their original um, uh, estimations quite quickly by by massive events or nations not taking care of their people. How does that 
understanding fit into sort of your overall view of what what the future might hold? Because I, I, I come away from that thinking there's no guarantee that, you know, we're, we're going to make the improvements that are necessary for those five-year-olds of today to reach the century mark. That's true. Uh, you know, of course, COVID took a, a big hit on our life expectancy. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just COVID. You know, we have um, lost years to what are commonly called deaths of despair, mm-hmm. uh, the opioids crisis, uh, suicide, uh, gun violence. You know, these are things that, that have hit our life expectancy in the United States. That said, the United Nations Population Office is projecting that we will probably make up the ground we lost during the pandemic as early as the end of this year. Uh, so, you know, we do rebound just as we rebounded from the uh, the uh, influenza epidemic in the beginning of the last century. Uh, we will regain ground. Right. I take away from that the importance of taking care of each other, right? Though on on a family level and a community level and definitely a national level yes. as well. Because I don't think you can really separate those from the things that an individual can do to have those extra worthy, worthwhile years. Right? We are social beings. We are social beings. Well, William Cole's new book is The Big 100, The New World of Super Aging. And we've got an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful to be with you, Megna. May I- you live 100 years. If you want to. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) A hundred good years. That's what I'd love. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.